Today on Pilot's Discretion, we're joined by Flying Magazine publisher Craig Fuller. He tells us about general aviation's renaissance, the new media environment, and flying the Icon A5. Pilot's Discretion starts right now. Hello, everyone. I'm John Zimmerman of Sporties, and thanks for listening. Remember to visit sporties.com slash podcast for show links and complete archives, and send your comments to podcast at sporties.com. Today, I am joined by Craig Fuller. He's been a pilot for three decades and currently owns an Icon seaplane, but in 2021, he took on a new role when he bought Flying Magazine, one of the longest-running media brands in aviation. He has injected new life into flying and is also developing a flying community near his home in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Craig, welcome to Pilot's Discretion. John, great to be here. Thanks for having me. You and I were talking recently about whether general aviation is experiencing a renaissance right now. Do you think it is? Absolutely. I think, you know, you can certainly credit the YouTube generation for doing that. I mean, the stuff that we see on YouTube, whether we're talking, you know, stole or backcountry flying or just the way that you have all of these influencers that are bringing attention to this really interesting and exciting recreational hobby, but also career path, I think is changing. And what's interesting about, uh, I think, this new generation of pilots is we're seeing a lot more women uh, pilots. We're seeing a lot more of people of color. We're seeing much younger people uh, in the airplanes. And we're seeing things that people are now aware that airplanes can do. It's no longer just a Cessna 152, you know, a instructor doing an instructor video that's talking about it. We're talking about what the airplanes are capable of. And I think it's driving a lot of new interest. You also see a lot of new venture capital and investment coming into some of the newer technologies uh, that has taken place across aviation. So a lot of the, whether we, we look at whether or not we accept that the these sort of new flying vehicles, the flying cars, the, the Joby Aviations have a uh, have a near-term future or a long-term future, there's a lot of investment that's coming into the space. And that investment is, is forcing the FAA and the regulators to think differently about innovation, which I think is going to open up a lot of new possibilities. And with all that investment, they're all having to use and take advantage of the general aviation existing formats to test and incubate their technology, which then creates derivative outcomes for the rest of us. We're all going to benefit from that. And then I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the whole recruiting that's happening of employment and career paths between all of the new charter and flight operators, the, you know, the token folks that are selling uh, date, you know, day slots or partial ownership all the way through to commercial pilot operators uh, and commercial airlines that are just putting enormous amount of capital uh, into uh, training new pilots. All of that is creating this substantial lift. And you can even look at the data. We sort of dipped in the mid-2000s in terms of the lowest number of new pilots. We've seen that accelerate since. So I think I agree with you, but let me give you a pessimistic argument I hear sometimes, which is, What's really happening is we're going through this once in a generation changeover at the airlines. There's a whole generation retiring. There's uh, a need for new pilots. And so there's there's a boom in flight training, and that's really what's driving it. And everything else is just sort of window dressing. But what you're well, saying I, I is there, there's more than that. With the money coming in with some changes in regulation, it's, it's really much deeper than just an airline story. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you only look at the airlines, I think you're missing the most important aspects of what's happening from a trend standpoint. And so if you look at the amount of capital, so it's sort of look at the history of general aviation or aviation period, really aviation, the the growth of the industry, the innovation, the money that came into the industry and the training was largely credited to the US military. That was the largest portion of both dollars invested in new technology, but also it was an enormous uh, contributor to pilot recruitment and pilot training. You know, and so you think about when we sort of ended the Cold War in 1990, a lot of that sort of growth and capital coming into aviation, aviation technology, and, but also training programs uh, sort of ended or at least slowed down a lot. And, and so we've had this two generation or two decade uh, issue where there hasn't been an enormous amount of government and military investment in new aviation programs and innovation. And in for a while, the free market, the capital markets didn't pick pick that up. But in the last 10 years, and particularly in the last five years, we've seen this reacceleration of investments because of the, the technology from the private sector uh, has caught up to uh, really creating business models that uh, are more imminent. And so the time to actually deploy things like uh, some of the new airframes that we see and some of the new designs uh, are more near term. And I think because of the fact that the private sector has picked up where, frankly, the government has left off, uh, has enabled us to have a much healthier ecosystem than what we had before. And I think when you look going forward, we're not going to put the genie back in the bottle. You know, venture capital is struggling right now, as is all capital markets, just because of the economy and valuations have got stretched. But it's not as if the capital is just going to all of a sudden go away. People are really bullish on the new technology that's coming, the fact that uh, urban air mobility offers a lot of new uh, offerings and and just the amount of new ways that we will uh, transport ourselves in the future, it, it just offers great commercial promise. And I think because of that, um, that means that you've got an entire ecosystem that has a lot of new money. So we're thinking about pilots and pilot training is really important. We have new engineers that are having to come into the market to, to basically uh, build these technologies and design these technologies. And we have a lot of technology and avionics that is being built with the future in mind that has to be deployed in a in sort of a test environment to existing airframes. And so I think all of that is, pr is pretty exciting. And that venture capital and that private sector capital element is a new development. We've not seen that since really any time in history that wasn't contributed by sort of that military industrial complex. You mentioned the backcountry and stole part of it, which has been a fun part to watch. What do you think's the driver there? You mentioned YouTube, which is obviously part of the story. Is there is there more going on? Is some of that post-COVID and new work arrangements? Is some of that new airframes? Is some of that just cultural? What do you think's driving that boom? I think I think all of it, right? So one of the great things about COVID and sort of a post-COVID environment, we sort of became really aware of our surroundings. We became aware of time. People started to really value the way that they sort of manage their time. Business travel, uh, in terms of of how people travel, whether on business or personal, we saw on a market share basis that private aviation took up a larger market share. And you can talk to any of the OEMs and airframe manufacturers, and their order books are even in a slugging economy or a slowing economy. Their order books are still full multi years, and it's really a function that 
people have rediscovered personal aviation. And because of that, I think it's driving a lot of interest. I think what we're seeing from uh, backcountry flying and stole flying is the YouTube generation. It is the Instagram generation, the TikTok generation that's driving a lot of that. And look, there's always been older folks that have been taking advantage of flying backcountry planes. I mean, tail draggers, a lot of those uh, tail dragger airframes are, you know, these are planes that were built in the 1950s and 1960s for the most part. And so you you have a lot of sort of the established folks that were flying backcountry, but it wasn't cool. It wasn't, hadn't sort of caught on. And I think it's sort of like the off-road of, if you sort of think of, uh, you know, off the SUV is what you end up having is these, these in many ways, is sort of an off-road vehicle element. But what we've seen because of the creation of video, whether it's GoPro or cell phone uh, video or just the YouTube and Instagram and, and TikTok uh, uh, factor, is it's opening people's eyes up to this entirely different type of flying. And I think what it, what it enables us as an industry to do is tell a story about the fact that this is not just rich people flying in corporate jets and their G650. Uh, it is people that are actually doing things to really, uh, as a hobby and explore and see parts of the country and the world that they wouldn't be able to otherwise experience it. And so I think it's an entirely different environment today in aviation than it has been at any point in time. Let's talk about the media business, because that's really where you connect into aviation here. And specifically, the media business as it exists today you wrote on Twitter recently, quote, I've never seen a more screwed up business model with so much potential than legacy print magazines, end quote. What is that potential you see? Well, it's it's funny you mentioned that. So I bought Flying Magazine, so, um, but I've also looked at a lot of acquisitions for media. So my background, I started a company called Freightways, which is often called the Bloomberg of Freight. And what that means is we have data, which we sell data to companies that are involved in supply chain, but we also have 50 full-time reporters but we're a digital-only uh, business. We do video, streaming video, podcast, live events, but also we have journalists that are writing articles. Um, and so about 50 articles a day is what we contribute to the site. Um, now, Flying is a print magazine, and I this is sort of my first uh, deep dive into what really goes on behind the scenes in print. And I think most people will appreciate the fact that media businesses and legacy media businesses have really struggled over the last couple of decades. The internet has really changed that business model. And if you sort of look at the way that print magazines built their businesses, so there's a couple of sort of characteristics to any kind of media business, but I think a business as old as flying, and you can go through and look at other sort of high affinity magazine brands that have really fanatical and deeply connected audiences. And flying is one of those. I mean, flying has been around since for 96 years. It has an enormous history. So one of the great things is going back and look at the archive, but it also has a really high level of personal connection to its audience. People love it. I get letters all the time of folks that say, you know, my father passed away and he had issues that go back since the 1950s and I've saved them all and I don't know what to do with them. Would you like them? I have other people that have said, hey, I've owned every issue and they can quote specific writers that they follow religiously that are part through the history of flying. But it, it has such a high level of identity uh, and connection to the audience that it means something. People really care about the brand. And I think that's pretty universal across high-end 
very large uh, ma historical magazines is you have people who have meant something. You sort of go back to my uh, earliest days as a, as a getting into aviation. Flying was a primary reason that I got into aviation because I would go to Barnes and Noble. Uh, you know, my, my mom would drop me off at, for an hour and she would go through the mall and I would be at Barnes and Noble and picking out the magazines and I would, I would look at flying magazine. I didn't have the money to buy it in those days. So I would just look at it, be that, that guy in the bookstore that was reading it. And, but it, it means something. And I think because it has that connection, it is always going to be something. And then when you get that subscription, it comes in the mail as a kid, you're, it's the first piece of mail that's addressed to you is your first magazine oftentimes. And you wait monthly for it to come because it's like this entirely different journey. This is pre-internet days. All that has meaning to people. And the reason that I pointed out that, that these businesses offer such promise is they have that connection. The audience cares deeply. You have the distribution, you have the mind share. And that is really important for businesses because in a modern business environment, companies are fighting for mind share. And things like Twitter and TikTok and Instagram and Facebook have really made it very difficult for us as humans to focus on anything. Print magazines are different, though, because when you open up the print magazine, you get lost in the content. There's no email to open. There's no Twitter to feed to, to get distracted with. There's no nothing popping up on your Instagram or even on TV. You get lost in the journey. And I think that's what makes magazines really uh, successful. Uh, and really important. The problem is when that business model was built and invented over the last hundred years, they built it based on an advertising first orientation. And the reality is that advertising in magazines still works for very specific product categories, but it doesn't work for every kind of product. And the problem is a lot of magazines have sort of held on to the idea that they're going to get all the predominance of their revenue from advertising and have subsidized the subscription price. So when I bought Flying, one of the things that was obvious to me was that they had watered down the content and watered down the quality of the print magazine because they were trying to hold on to the subscribers that were basically not paying them very much. So on average, $8 a subscription a year. It costs just under even the cheapest paper to do print and fulfillment, about $12 a year to fulfill, a dollar a magazine, a dollar an issue. I was like, look, this isn't gonna work. And my thesis was, if someone who's in aviation can't afford 30, 40, or $50 a year for a magazine, they probably don't care about the content. Uh, anyways. And it was more of a, why don't we go high end? Let's increase the quality of the magazine, make it worth buying and make it worth something somebody wants. And let's get rid of all the timely sort of newsy type articles and move into stuff that has evergreen qualities to it so that you can look at it in a year or perhaps even five years. And those articles still resonate with you and have meaning to you. And that was what we've shifted for flying is We've decided that we're not going to chase subscription numbers for the sake of uh, subscription numbers. We're going to really focus on super high quality. And I think this is true of a lot of media brands. I mean, John, you're an advertiser at Sporties, but you talk to any of the advertisers. What advertisers truly care about, and this is the, the misalignment between print advertisers or print magazines, I think, is that they believe that if they had massive distribution, we have half a million or a million uh, uh, readers each month that that would matter to you. The internet days have changed all that. What you really care about 
is knowing what is your return on investment. And I care about these 5,000 or these 10,000 or these 20,000 people re- actually reaching them. I want a high quality audience that's going to buy products from me. And because I want the high quality audience where this can resonate with them, I'm willing to, to, I don't care about the broader distribution. I care about the right distribution. And so what we focused on is going premium. Uh, we want to be an aspirational brand for aviation. We want to be available for everybody, whether they're learning to fly or perhaps don't have enormous amount of, of money. I still want it to be aspirational in the sense that this is a, this is a, important content that takes a lot of investment to put out. We have an enormous budget for contributors and photography and now a much higher quality uh, magazine. And it's going to be more expensive than it was before because we are now prioritizing our subscribers and generating the predominance of our revenue from subscriptions over advertising. doesn't mean advertising is not important, but it means that the right kind of ads are important. And you can see the evolution of this. If you go back and pull a flying magazine from two years ago, one of the things that you'll notice is a lot of really low quality ads in that that have no relevance or even detract from the quality of the overall publication. You will only find full page ads that are only connected to aviation and uh, so we fired a lot of advertisers. We said just aren't relevant. And um, I hope that the readers recognize that. And I hope that the readers will go on the journey with us and support it because we are really trying to become a subscription first revenue business. And I think my point was, if you can make that leap, and we certainly have done it, we've gotten to profitability uh, this year, even with all the changes we've made. If you can make that leap, you have an enormous asset that you can then go do other things with. Yeah. And I think you're smart. There's a piece there that is momentum, right? That especially in an enthusiast niche, you can feel that that momentum when there's people who really care about it. So I think that's been smart. And, and one of the pieces that's related to that, at least a little bit, is your concept for this flying community you're developing uh, close by to your offices. So give me the vision on that of, of why an air park might strangely be related to a, a media business. So when we when I bought flying, having a media background, Freightways does a lot of uh, daily streaming video content. So really, when people look at me a little strange and say, we do live TV for freight and supply chain, they're like, why do you do that? You know, there's 8 million people in the United States that are involved in logistics. And these are decision makers that have to make decisions based on something happening in the world. So whether we're talking about COVID and disrupting the flow of cargo or a ship that's shut off a canal uh, and all of a sudden... You're having to deal with that. You're getting calls from your CEO, your investors, and your board are calling, wanting answers on what has happened in my supply chain. Those people need information. So we set up streaming video, and we do about five hours of live TV a day. And so we wanted to also emulate that model at flying, not necessarily for news, but for high-quality video. I'm just a real believer that you can make a very successful video video products if it's highly produced. And one of the things I'll be very clear on is we will never go and compete with the influencer market that are doing YouTube videos, that are filming themselves flying. That stuff is really important for, for aviation. It's really, it's it's highly, it's high quality. I enjoy watching those things. That's not what we're talking about. What we have the opportunity to do at flying is sit down with the designers, the aircraft manufacturers, the avionics designers, and really get into the depths of this flying and aviation ecosystem that goes beyond just being in the air. We'll let the influencers do what they want to do. But when there's a new airframe that comes out or there's a new product that wants to be offered, we at Flying have the opportunity to bring those people in and really, in many ways, uh, 
deconstruct what they're building and, and be able to show it, but use video to do it. So one of the things we wanted to do is build a TV studio. The problem is if you want to do a TV studio connected to aviation, it's got to be near an airport. And so I went on this journey talking to all of the municipal airports and the regional airports and small GA airports around Chattanooga, Tennessee, because I wanted to keep it close. And I was trying to find a location. And if anyone's ever shot for a hangar or tried to build a hangar anywhere, you can appreciate this is that you have to get, if it's, if it's funded by the FAA, and if, and in particular, if it's owned or controlled by a municipality, you've got to get local government, maybe a county and city involved. You've got to get the state government involved. You've got to get the FAA involved. You have all these different parties, and you're talking about a multi-year process just to build a hangar. It's insane. And I was like, Look, this doesn't this – is, this is not ideal. The other thing I also realized really quickly, because I bought my second airplane, I bought a Technum Astora, which is a, a small LSA in addition to my Icon. I also realized there's a national hangar shortage where you actually can't find hangar space. And so these are problems as an entrepreneur you're trying to figure out. So I realized really quickly that we weren't going to be able to build a headquarters studio at an airport unless we own the airport. And so I started looking at land and my thought was, we'll just build a strip and we'll build a studio and maybe we'll put some hangars there. And I drove, there's a place in East Tennessee called the Squatchy Valley. And you can see it from space. It's eight miles wide, about 60 miles uh, north to the south. And you can see it from space. 1,000-foot AGL, and it looks like somebody took a bulldozer, like God took a bulldozer and bulldozed out this, this stretch of land because it's just it's pre- almost perfectly straight. But it's also some of the most beautiful flying in this part of the country. And I always fly to this airport uh, down in Jasper, Tennessee, Marion County, and I, and I fly north to this valley just because it's such an incredible uh, flying experience. And I found this piece of property at 1,500 acres, which was far more – than I would ever have imagined to, you know, to build a, an airport, you need a hundred ish acres, maybe 150 to build something. So 1500 is way too much. And so, but I arrived there and it reminded me of this resort in East Tennessee called Blackberry farm. And it is a suburban mom's dream. It, you know, it's very expensive. It's like $4,000 a night, but it is like a destination for, I think women sort of over, uh, this is at least, Everyone I've talked to is their wives that are taking them there or wanting to go there. But there's no golf courses, but they have all these activities that are sort of based on this sort of rural agrarian lifestyle that you sort of get back to the basics. And it sort of people that are living the suburban life or even city life sort of enjoy this immersement in East Tennessee uh, farm luxury. And I got there and I was like, this is Blackberry Farm right here. We have the opportunity to build that right here and we could build an air park. I had also been to Alpine, Wyoming and been to the Alpine Air Park, which is just an amazing place in itself. And we thought, why don't we combine the concept, what Alpine did of going high-end air park, luxury uh, real estate with Blackberry Farm and build a resort community in East Tennessee dedicated to aviation. So that's exactly what we've built. Uh, we'll break ground in January. And uh, we're really excited about it. Um, it's it's gone really well at at scale. When we're done with the project, it's a twenty year uh, construction. By the time we're done, the master plan is at least twenty years. Uh, we'll have an on site hotel and spa. We'll have a winery. Uh, there'll be equestrian. There's rock climbing. This you know, we have a mile of riverfront. Uh, we've got three miles of mountain brow top that overlooks the valley. So you could build a house at the top of the mountain 
and overlook the runway as planes fly in. It's going to be an incredible experience for pilots. And one of the things that really resonated uh, with our audience, because we advertised it in Flying Magazine, going back to the concept that, that if you have a media business that has a highly connected and engaged audience, then basically we used Flying Magazine. It's the only way we've advertised it. We've sold, pre-sold 200 lots only through our own magazine. And what we found when we we described the, the the project that we were constructing, we described it in that Blackberry Farm essence. And what we found, it was the women, which for air parks is sort of unusual. I had to sell my wife, who was a lot, who would never live in an air park. It made it very clear, like, look, you can go hang out at the airport. I have zero interest in doing that. I want to get on an airplane and off an airplane. That's as far as I want to consider for aviation. I'm sure those folks that are listening can relate with that. Uh, unfortunately, my wife isn't a big aviation nut. And so for her, the most that she wants to do is just be in the airplane. That's it. What we what we were able to accomplish and what we think we've accomplished is an experience that is open for the families and open for the partners that are not aviation first, but perhaps their husbands or uh, spouses are aviation oriented. And that was really the goal here. Craig, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to ask you about your icon. Earn your pilot's license, get current or add a rating. No matter what your goal is, Sporty's pilot training app will save you time and money. It's available on all your devices, including iPad, iPhone, Android, and smart TVs. So you can access Sporty's award-winning courses anywhere. Plus, with automatic sync between platforms and free lifetime updates, you'll always be current. Over 25 courses are available, from private pilot to aerobatics. Visit sporties.com discover for a free trial. Now, back to pilot's discretion. We're back with Craig Fuller, who spends a lot of time flying an Icon A5 seaplane an airplane that really made waves when it was announced because of that focus on fun flying. And you wrote recently that flying the Icon A5 is the most fun I have had doing anything, which is pretty strong praise. Do you think we need more airplanes like that where the focus really is about fun instead of that practical travel, do something efficient with the airplane? Absolutely. I mean, I think it goes back to what we've talked about throughout this entire journey is that that is what makes aviation not just interesting and exciting, but also expands the umbrella. It, it enables us to show what this hobby, this activity is all about. And I think um, there are so many different, I think everybody who's into aviation, or at least most people I've met that are really into it, have a list of aircraft. My wife doesn't like me going to Oshkosh or any air show for that matter, because I come back with a, a wish list of things I want to buy. And and the reality is that the the what the icon does for me is it in many ways it creates an entirely different experience of flying an aircraft that is unlike anything else that you that I have flown in the sense that I get to go out on the water, uh, get to land in the water, you know, maybe maybe even hang out on the water for hours at a time. Uh, and the great thing about the icon is you can land anywhere. So, well, not anywhere, but certainly on the water. 
and it opens up an entirely different adventure every time. Like I love flying into airports. I just think it's cool landing and and lining up and landing. Just the activity is is always sort of a, a thrill to me. I get a little bit of a drum rush every single time. Um, I the cool part about landing on water is that you can land almost anywhere that's safe. You obviously have to do your safe checks, but it's a different experience over time. And I just think that invites an entirely different type of experience. And I think just like backcountry flying, the reality is that we need more of these sort of special use vehicles, the, the SUVs of sorts, um, to, to open up more people to aviation, to make it more accessible. So I know there's a, there's folks in the audience that are listening to this and, and folks in aviation that anytime a new airframe or a new type of aircraft, they get really, you know, it's become very against it. They don't want it to succeed because they feel like it's, it's going to lower, like this is a really exclusive group that we need to keep it really as our own. I, I think completely different than that. I think we should look at how do we expand the types of things that the airplanes can do? How do we expand the types of activities that people can do and do safely? And I just think if we can broaden the tent, it just makes everybody's life better. It makes innovation more sticky and just creates a, an entirely healthier system. So that's my view on it. Um, I know the most people feel that way, but there are always those folks that don't like change and anytime anything's new out there, they can criticize it. They're always going to be there but for me, I love seeing all of the things happening. And you can even look at backcountry flying with, with the airframes of basically taking a, a model that was invented really in, you know, in that uh, 1930s uh, uh, in World War II sort of airframe design, and they've repurposed it with a modern, modern system. So we see some really cool stuff. I mean, I think what Cubcraft was doing, Aviat's doing what um, – uh, even the the Waco, the Waco, what they've built and sort of recreating these airframes based on historical designs is just amazing. And so there's so much happening. It's just an exciting space. I want to ask you briefly about safety and then we'll get to our, our ready to copy segment because sometimes I think there's a little bit of a trade-off here when it is all about fun and you can land anywhere, whether that's backcountry, that's seaplane. How do you manage that safety part of it where we want to have fun, but we also, this isn't quite like just even driving a car off road where if we get stuck, we, we stop and hopefully we get pulled out. How do you, how do you keep that fun flying safe and keep that as part of the conversation without making it seem, uh, you know, too parental or, or, or sucking all the joy out of it? Look, I think it's a, look, I'm not a safety expert, so I won't pretend to have those answers. And I would, I would caution to, to, to your readers to know that I'm not a safety expert. So anything I should say, they should take that in context. I think from my own experience, um, you know, one of the things I did, so yes, I've been flying for three decades. What we didn't talk about is the fact that I took 20 years off in that period. So I started flying at 13, I stopped flying at 20, and then picked it up at 41 years old, uh, old. And so I had a 20-year gap in my flying. So I had 200 hours when I stopped, and now I have like 450 hours. I've, in the last year and a half, I've had 250 uh, new hours. Um, and so one of the things I did when I got back in the airplane was I, I basically got 40 hours of instruction in the ICON. ICON will tell you that five hours of sort of transition training is what you need. For me, going back and doing 40 hours of training in the ICON with an ICON-certified instructor and basically relearning everything that I knew. What I found is I had really good muscle memory. In fact, almost too good of muscle memory because uh, things like, you know, 
a Cessna 172, you cut the power on landing. And the Icon, you're not supposed to do that because it has such high drag that you'll actually fall out of the you – know, you, you, you won't be able to maintain your lift. And so the, the reality is that um, a lot of the muscle memory was there, but just the techniques and the, um, the overall uh, – the things that you need to know to stay proficient were not something that I had retained. And so for me, it was getting back in the air and just – repeating with an instructor all of the things that I needed to learn. And I think one of the things that, at least as it relates to my experience with the icon, is, you know, Chattanooga has an enormous river system around here and lake system. So it is, there's so many places that I can go that um, the rivers are wide open, the lakes are wide open, that, that not only is it safe and legal, but it's also an area that I, I have an enormous amount of orientation to because I fly it frequently. I think that for me has enabled me to feel incredibly comfortable flying the icon around here. When I, um, I ended up buying a second icon, my, my wife's family, uh, lives in New Jersey. Um, even though you can't land an icon in the state of New Jersey because they won't let you do it. You can in New York at certain places. I, I was like, I'm not ready to sell the first. This is sort of the first airplane I got. I had a sentimental uh, attachment to it. So I'm not ready to sell it. So I'm going to move it to New Jersey for the summer. And I did, but I wanted to fly the Hudson because I was like, hey, this is really cool. But frankly, flying into New York City or flying the Hudson is a pretty intimidating thing for anyone. And so I hired an instructor. I said, take me out and let me know what I need to do. I read what you're supposed to do, but I wanted to actually see it myself. It's actually a very easy thing to do if you've ever flown the Hudson. It actually doesn't. It's not very difficult. But I wasn't, I wasn't ready to do that. And so I think one of the things that, at least from where I sit, is if I go to a new part of the country, uh, if I'm not flying, if I'm if I'm not flying airport to airport, but I'm flying sort of off airport or flying into some new adventure, particularly with the icon. I think having that orientation, having someone who knows the local area uh, that can point out uh, obstructions or issues or procedures or, or just ways to maintain safety, I think is incredibly important. And so that's been my experience. Um, uh, you know, when I fly cross country, I'm always, uh, you know, doing flight following uh, and things like that. I think you can just do to maintain. And I, I think frankly, glass cockpits, when I stopped flying in, you know, 1999, the glass cockpit was a concept that Cirrus was, I think had just rolled out and produced, but it was in limited production at that point in time. And the glass cockpit wasn't a thing. I had a portable GPS that I would keep with me if it was sort of for, for safety. That has changed everything, I think, in the experience. Getting real-time weather from Cirrus XM and, uh, you know, having all your AOPA directories there and, and all the flight planning there. I think it just makes it, and obviously GPS, it makes things so much easier and frankly can mitigate a lot of the things that potentially can get you in trouble, but you got to take advantage of the tools and frankly, got to know how to use them. All right, Craig, we like to close each one of these episodes with a lightning round. We call ready to copy. I'll throw out some questions on a variety of topics. You give me your quick answer. Are you ready to copy? Absolutely. Which movie's better, Top Gun 1 or Top Gun 2? Two. Why is that? I, 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 videography. I just like the cinematography. I just think the scene where they're flying through the mountains and you, you just have this uh, the way that they're – just the beauty of that I think is pretty tremendous. You're a father of five, so I'm interested in your take on what GA should be doing to attract the next generation of pilots. Is it just more of this uh, YouTube fun flying stuff or is there something else specific we should do? 
You know, I think YouTube and, and video games, thank God to Microsoft for bringing back Flight Simulator. People have been reminded how cool it is. You mentioned the urban air mobility and EV tall boom. Is that going to turn to bust in the next 12, 24 months? There will be some big companies that go out of business in that space for sure. But the reality is the technology and the innovations will live on for decades. We will benefit from that. Uh, even if it's indirect innovation, we will end up, that, that technology will end up in general aviation aircraft. And, and let's just point out the FAA needs uh, to be pushed on innovation. And that is the greatest benefit of, that, of, of all of that. Nothing like money to motivate the FAA. You mentioned freight waves. And in that world of, of logistics and freight, there's been a lot of talk of trucker shortages over recent years. Is there a lesson we can learn in aviation about the pilot shortage that a lot of people talk about? You know, trucking companies have had to look outside of their sort of demographic. You know, they have been much out of necessity, but have really sort of realized that, you know, hiring from a single type of demographic is a really bad strategy long term. So they, you know, a lot of trucking companies have built Spanish speaking Punjabi, uh, you know, big Punjabi orientation for a lot of truck drivers, Eastern European. So they have been uh, bringing a lot of diversity, not necessarily just because they believe it's the right thing to do, but more because they think they have to. It's an economic reason. And, and it is all those things. But but I think aviation could do the same. I and mean, there's, there's few jobs that offer the kind of upward mobility as becoming a commercial pilot. Um, and, and, and I think that is the type of stuff that we should be very proud of is that we offer so much upward mobility. I mean, think of what, what the airlines are doing in terms of just sign-on bonuses. And one of the things that's challenging is how do you, how do you create better programs to make it more economical for people to enter the industry to get their training? And that's the part where we have a lot of work to do. The trucking industry has spent an enormous amount of money and has benefited from a lot of government funding and assistance programs to bring new truck drivers into the industry. Um, sometimes not always for the best, just because it has a high churn rate. Aviation could do that as well as make significant investments on that training, get them into the business. I think we, we would do it. Remember the military is not producing the kind of pilots that they have that they did 30 years ago the private sector needs to really pick that up. Will electric tr trucks change the shipping industry? Just had a big rollout recently from Tesla, right? There's more promise. Is that going to be a big deal or just a, a minor story long-term? Look, electric trucks for local city distribution, it's great. But the electric semi, that is a very limited use case. Um, you know, Elon Musk said he was going to deliver it 200,000 semis by the end of 2022. From what I count, he delivered two that we could count. <laughs> I don't know if he actually delivered. They didn't say how many they were actually delivering that day. We do know that there was at least two. Um, but no, it's like the problem, much like aviation, the, the technology and the storylines are cool. They're very sexy. But there's a lot of physical limitations to it. We have the same thing in aviation. Electric aviation has a lot of physical limitations. Weight is a problem. Battery technology uh, is challenging. The physics of that. But then you also have operating business models that are challenging for trucking. Is A, a fleet is not going to go out and buy a two hundred or $300,000 semi and, 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 and really replace their entire fleet until they've actually tested this over replacement cycles. No different than if you were running 
a, a flight operator and you had five aircraft and this new aircraft came, you would not replace your entire fleet until you at least had ran one of those through one uh, generational cycle or, or two through gen, two generational cycles. So because of that, it's going to take a while before we see mass adoption of electric semis. And there's a lot of physics that are just not figured out. There's a lot of infrastructure problems that are not figured out. So it's great. It's great visibility. Elon Musk deserves an enormous amount of credit for making trucking sexy um, uh, and really introducing the fact that there's a lot of technology happening. But it is a lot of, uh, like many things, the media has hyped it much more so than what it necessarily deserves. Our last question, always the same on pilot's discretion, Craig, you have one final flight and we want to know what are you flying and where are you going? One final flight. You know, I would, if it was my final flight, I would do the Hudson at night with my wife. My, again, my wife isn't a big aviation nut, but getting her in the air is always a, a an unusual experience for me. And, um, flying the Hudson at night, uh, that meant something to her. So I would do that again. Craig, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Pilot's Discretion, brought to you by Sporties, training and equipping pilots worldwide for over 60 years. For more episodes and today's show links, visit sporties.com slash podcast. I'm John Zimmerman. We'll see you next time on Pilot's Discretion.